What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1 where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We are brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm, Celtics beat writer for Mass Live. I am joined by Nicole Yang of the Boston Globe. So we are recording this on Tuesday after the Celtics dropped game one against the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, 117 to 114 in overtime. The Celtics had multiple opportunities to win that one and, uh, opted not to. Uh, Nicole, what, uh, what are some of your takeaways? I mean, I think first you just have to appreciate Bam's block. Crazy. And first overtime. I still don't understand how he did it. And I've watched the clip so many times now. It looks like, I mean, again, obviously I'm not a doctor or like a basketball professional, but it like literally looks like he could have broken his wrist. It like, looks like his wrist is going to snap off. Yeah. The force that Tatum, I mean, especially the angle from like behind the backboard where you see Tatum yeah. getting up. Like it looks like this is like a bunch of the highlights we've seen from Tatum where he just dunks over someone. It looks like Bam's about to get posterized and instead he somehow forces that ball out of the hoop and out of Tatum's hand and also corrals the yeah it's so impressive and I mean everyone talks about how strong Bam is and I think that shows it because that was as good of a look that you could have asked for if you're the Celtics and Jason Tatum on that play I just still don't understand how it happened it was it was incredible It's pretty crazy when you look at some of the still images of the block because in one of them you can see Tatum going up to dunk the ball. He jumped like long before Bam jumped. Like he he was already high in the air and then Bam, you know, leapt up and somehow managed to uh, block that still despite Tatum having a head start. It would have been a crazy play by Tatum even if Bam hadn't been there because he blew right by Jimmy Butler who was guarding him. I mean, it was a really nice play. You know, got right to the rim, had had a chance to throw it down. And I mean, it would have been uh, pretty crazy if that game had gone to double overtime on on Jason Tatum just blowing by Jimmy and and having a, a huge dunk. But absolutely unbelievable play by Bam. I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, a little prison of the moment when I see, I think it was Magic Johnson tweeted, that's like the best block in uh, playoff history. And it's like, well, four years ago, LeBron blocked Andre Iguodala at the rim in the Game 7 of the Finals. So maybe we can calm down a little bit. It's definitely the best block since that, though. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Like, it was wild. In terms of, like, larger takeaways, I mean, the Celtics really just blew it, in my opinion. Like, they really did. And that feels harsh. But heading into the fourth quarter, they had a 14-point lead. Midway through the fourth quarter, they had a nine-point lead. I think with 69 seconds left, they had a five-point lead. Yeah, like five points with a minute left isn't that big of a deal, but 
I think on that play where Kemba turned it over, it was a shot clock violation. They could have gone up two possessions with like 40 seconds left. Like they were in the driver's seat. The Heat played really well, but I'm more inclined to say that the Celtics sort of like shot themselves in the foot. You know, you take Jimmy Butler's big three toward the end of regulation, you know, the layup plus the foul in overtime where he, you know, just kind of bodied Tatum, you know, and and obviously Bam's block. Like, it's, it's tough for me to, like, look at those things and say it was entirely the Celtics blowing it. Um, yeah, but they shouldn't have had that opportunity. The Celtics let them back in the game, like 100%. Yeah, like, like, I know it's kind of natural to have a 14-point lead and then start to play really conservative and start to, like, try to milk the clock and all this other stuff. I, I mean, I don't know the stats on, uh like, playing prevent offense, but I feel like you lose 100% of the time. Like, especially against the Heat in the playoffs. Like, what do you, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, what do you expect if you're going to give them that opportunity? No, for sure. And Brad talked about in his post game the transition defense and that big uh, Tyler Hero three that kept the Heat in it. I, I think if Hero misses that shot, the game's over. I think he, that brought it back down to a two-point game after the Celtics had it back up to five. They had all kinds of opportunities, even if their shots aren't falling, to, to win this game. If you're the Celtics, I think you can look at this game. Like, I think there's reasons to be encouraged, you know, about the series going forward after this game. But I also think that, like, you have to be self-aware enough to look at this game and be like, yeah, they blew this one this was one they should have won and it's the eastern conference finals like you can't afford to blow games i guess moving to the beginning of the game sort of when they looked really good like they got out to that 12-3 lead and everyone i feel like the consensus on twitter was like oh my god like thank you so much toronto for like giving us such a hard-fought battle in the second round because it really prepared us for basically any other opponent in the conference finals because you'd think that any bucket would be easier to get against the Heat than it would be to get against Toronto. And I think we kind of saw that in the first quarter. Like the Celtics were playing at like their preferred pace. It looks like it was much easier for them to score. Tatum took advantage of Tyler Hero early on. Duncan Robinson picked up two fouls. Like everything seemed to be going their way. And they got off to a really good start. And they were 10 for 15 from the field, whereas the Heat were 4 of 16. Also unsustainable. That's very true. Maybe it was Miami didn't really show much else on defense yet. And then once they went to their zone and I mean, that was the whole thing in the Raptors series. Like once they go to the zone, it's like hard for the Celtics to find a bucket. And then once Miami starts going on offense too, like Brad talked about the transition offense. And I feel like that was such a point of emphasis against the Raptors. And you could see the Celtics hustling to get back. And it's like, you have to do this in this series too. Like the heat pushed the ball. Like they like to play yeah. so fast. And I feel like there wasn't that same effort in getting back. Like they played good defense, but like you could tell that like they weren't like hustling their asses off in the way that they were in the Raptors series to get back. Yeah, they weren't flying around the way they were in the Raptors series. And if they had flown around the way they did in the Raptors series, they would have won that game. You, like you could just kind of tell. There's something to what you said about everybody talking about how much easier the offense looked. I, I wonder if they got a little bit complacent based on the fact that Toronto, you know, I think was is a better defensive team than Miami but that isn't to say that Miami's bad there is some like tendency to let up and I also think there was some amount of like the Celtics were making shots if shot making deserts you everything else has to be solid if you want to maintain the lead and everything else was not solid for the Celtics tonight so I think if you're the Celtics you'd be much more panicked if it wasn't for the fact that you can tell that there's things that are fixable that they can do you know like you can try to get back to the way that you were playing in transition that kind of defense you can move the ball a little bit more against the zone you can do those things you just have to do it I think the biggest things that needed to be fixed from game one can be fixed. You just have to play harder. Yeah, and I think they can also integrate other things that we didn't really see that much. Like they didn't. Oh, do you mean like Jalen Brown? 
<laughs> I mean, I was talking more of Duncan Robinson had some foul trouble, but like they didn't really pick on Duncan Robinson. They didn't really pick on Tyler Hero. I mean, Tyler Hero, I think, held his ground a bit better than maybe people expected, but that was also because the Celtics sort of left them off the hook. There's definitely holes in the heat defense that can be exposed, and the Celtics didn't really do a lot of that because they did a lot of iso ball. Yeah, they did. Just like some really disastrous offense down the stretch for the Celtics. I mean, I I do want to say, like, before we get into all the negative stuff, I think that people are making way too big a deal about Tatum's final shot of regulation. Relatively deep three. I literally had no problem with it. I think that's the shot that you want. I mean, obviously, it goes in, but you want Tatum taking an ISO three at that point because, as you've seen by game three of the Raptors series, you don't (laughs) want to leave any time on the clock for the Heat. And, of course, like, the chances of that exact thing happening are very slim, but, like, because it's tied – You might as well just, like, let Tatum – I mean, he had a great game. Let Tatum have a a shot. I mean, he has, what, like, above 40% chance of making it? I agree. I think I'm totally fine with that. Well, and, like, look, like, it's it's a pretty run-of-the-mill NBA, like, end-of-game shot. Like, it's it's pretty much what everybody does in that exact situation. Like, you know, everybody's like, why didn't Brad call a play? I don't know. Why doesn't anybody call a play in that literal exact situation? It's funny because the reason that you want a shot maker, the reason that you want a guy who can create his own shot and make his own shot is for that exact scenario. The end-of-game isolation, he gives you a chance to win. Tatum gave them a chance to win. The shot was online. It was just a little short. Like, it happens. Okay, maybe it's the execution. Maybe, yeah, he could have had a bigger step back or something, or maybe he could have done a sidestep. You know, like, maybe it's the execution, but the play call, I think, is totally fine. For sure. Like, down the stretch, though, leading up to that, the play that I had an issue with was when Kemba Walker basically just took the whole shot clock to, like, literally pulled, like, um, a Norm Powell, essentially. Yeah. (laughs) It was the most bizarre thing ever. Like, took the entire shot clock just to, like, dribble it out. Like, especially... At nine seconds on the shot clock, I was muttering to myself, what is he doing? And he kept dribbling for five more seconds. <laughs> like, like, and he knows better. Oh, yeah. If we're going to... It kind of looked like he just couldn't make up his mind what he wanted to do to Jay Crowder. I think maybe that has to do with his confidence from just yeah. the game because he didn't have a good night. He made some important shots. Like, he had another great mid-range step back. But, like, overall, he could not really find an offensive rhythm. So maybe that's something to do with it. But if we're going to criticize, like, the shot selection in the final minute, that one deserves way more, like, flack than Tatum's, in my opinion. 100% agree. I don't want to make it sound like I'm making excuses for all of the iso ball that was happening down the stretch because it was happening way too much. And Tatum was like a culprit. You know, I thought that Tatum was one of the guys who was bleeding the shot clock like way too deep. And, you know, again, I, I think that so much of the uh Celtics offense could just be fixed against the zone by moving the ball a little bit more, just passing it around a little bit more. And I would expect that that will be a big focus of theirs going forward. The, the Celtics really killed themselves in those last three minutes just by dribble, 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 bad shot, dribble, dribble bad shot. So I guess now we'll just like go back and forth with just like other observations. One thing that made me laugh was Mark Jones in the third quarter. He was like, oh, um, the he have a mismatch here. And he was talking about Marcus Smart guarding Bam out of bio. And I was just like, no. <laughs> like, and then the funny part was when he said this, Goran Dragic had the ball on the perimeter with Tice guarding him. 
And so that was the mismatch. <laughs> That's and the mismatch. Yeah. Goran smartly drove to the basket and got a layup against Tice. But yes. I, I just, I just was amused by the national broadcast crew, not named Joris Burke, just being like, Oh, a uh, shorter person on taller person mismatch when it's like, if you've seen any players try and post up Marcus Smart, you know, this <laughs> isn't going to end well. Literally the only guy who can do it is Joel Embiid. And uh, I, I will also note that uh, Mark Jones, I believe, is my favorite play-by-play guy. So just uh, <laughs> swing and a miss on that one. Also swing and a miss on that the national broadcast just does not quite get the Time Lord thing. On the topic of uh, Marcus Smart, though, one of the things I'll be interested to watch, you know, Jimmy Butler didn't have like a crazy game. 20 points, 7 for 14 from the field, 5 assists. I wonder if we won't see more Marcus Smart on him next game. I know Jason Tatum got the assignment for the most part, and he was fine, I thought, but I think at the end of the game, you really saw, you know, why Jimmy is kind of a tough matchup for Tatum still, because Tatum, he's put on muscle, but, you know, he's got more to do in terms of, you know, building up his strength, and Jimmy can kind of body him a little bit. Jimmy's big enough and strong enough and powerful enough that he can do that. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some smart on Jimmy Butler, which given their history together would be pretty fun. In terms of smart offensively, I was going to ask you. So obviously like he was great tonight in terms of like production, but I think something that happens and maybe it is true with other players, but you just notice it with smart because he's such a, I don't know if polarizing is the right word, but like such a hot and cold offensive player. Like when he gets going, he like goes for it. Like when he is making threes, he likes to take them. And I feel like he took some ill-advised ones in this game. How do you feel about that? I know um, in the first quarter, he took like 40% of the Celtics shots and like that's great when they're going in, but it's like that's obviously not the distribution the Celtics want. As much as they love and appreciate Marcus Smart, that's just not a sustainable yeah. offense for them. So like, what are your thoughts, I guess, on how he handles that, like when he gets hot? Yeah, I mean, it's complicated because sometimes he, I think over the years he's gotten better at, he'll take his his one or two heat checks and then sort of curtail himself. I think he's gotten better and better at that. Like, yeah, okay, that was a bad shot. I missed that one. Let me, let me, let me take a small step back. Cause he didn't used to. <laughs> he used to be pretty yeah. sure that all of them were going in. Tonight, I think we saw a couple of pretty bad ones. There was one in transition in the second half where he went to the corner and shot a three with Jalen wide open under the basket. Afterward, you could see Jalen kind of like frustrated and then they went into a timeout and he and Smart appeared to be kind of discussing it and Jalen kind of threw up his hands at one point. This isn't like a, the Celtics are in disarray thing. I just think it was, uh, you know, Marcus Morris shoving Jalen Brown. Yeah, it's not that. It's just, I think it was just Jalen being like, come on, man, I was wide open. But, um, also a few plays before or leading up to that, he came down and had a pull up three and he made it, but Jalen was like, right on the way to the hoop. Like that would have been a, I think that would have been the traditional call there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's the easiest way to, uh, to describe Smart's offense is just non traditional. Um, I think he's at this point as a shooter, he has earned the right to, to shoot threes in volume as long as he's not like, you know, one for eight or something like that. Like if he's one for eight, he, he, he needs to stop. But like, like you, you're not, you don't, you no longer watch Marcus Smart pull up for a three and think, Oh boy, that's not going in. You think like, Oh yeah, like he's, he's shooting a three. It's like just right. like a very basic thing now. E- even if you don't think it's going to go in, you're like, Oh yeah, that was a good shot. There's the classic smart screen grab of him flipping off the crowd for going, Oh, 
oh no, as he shot a three and then like he made it and then he like flipped everyone off, which was hilarious. But like, I mean, that's how, that's how he used to be. Like he's come a long ways. And I mean, especially when you think about, I think that one of the big reasons why he only got $52 million over four years was because they were afraid that he was never going to be able to shoot. And now the fact that he can shoot in the mid 30% from three, I mean, that's, it's, it's why his contract is such an incredible bargain. But yeah, I, I guess I would say I don't, you know, on a night like tonight, obviously he took a couple bad ones. I think you kind of like take the good with the bad with him sometimes offensively. You know, he was nine for 18, six for 13 from three. It's a lot of shots. That's a lot of three point attempts, but like you go six for 13 and you're not too mad about it. Like that's a good number. I, I would agree with that. As we saw last series, it could have been two for 13 if you're Pascal Siakam. <laughs> Just the drive-by shooting at Pascal Siakam. Something else I was curious for your opinion on is just sort of Kemba's struggles persisting into this series as well. I think in game six and seven of the Toronto series, a lot of his shooting woes were attributed to Nick Nurse deploying like a box end one. Kemba acknowledged that in press conferences. Brad acknowledged it in press conferences. But then yet again, we see today, like he still sort of didn't really find his rhythm. And Chris Forsberg tweeted out in the third quarter, Kemba Walker in his last 11 quarters, he's eight for 36 from the field, 22.2% field goal percentage, two of 18 from three point, 11.1 three point percentage and he's missed 25 of his last 29 three-pointers overall. Those are really bad numbers for Kemba Walker. Those are bad numbers for anybody, but especially for Kemba Walker. Like, like, what did you make sort of of his struggles yet again? Yeah, I so I, I tweeted after the game, in his last five games from three, he's one for six, one for six, one for six, one for seven, one for nine. It's brutal. So I've actually been wondering about this. Kemba is kind of a str- like, and we, we knew that coming in, like he, he's always been kind of streaky. I wonder sometimes, like, obviously he had the stretch, you know, at UConn where he, you know, did the, the whole run to the championship thing and it was amazing. And it was this like incredible clutch performance. And he's just been labeled this like clutch playoff performer ever since then. The man has not been to the, like, has not played meaningful playoff games for like eight years. And this whole time, this expectation has been built of him that when he gets to the playoffs, he's going to be cardiac Kemba because, oh, well, we all saw it in college for this one stretch. Yes, you've got this one really high profile instance of it, but you don't have any other evidence of it. It's like, <laughs> I'm not saying that I think that Kemba isn't a clutch performer. I think he, you know, I think he's risen to the occasion many times in big apes. He had that big shot against Tyler Hero that, that could have won it if the, if the Celtics could have gotten the stop where Jimmy Butler got the end one. I mean, he, he was a little bit better late in the game than he was at the beginning. But I do wonder sometimes if there is, you know, if like the expectations that are heaped on him um, are a little unfair just because like it's been eight years since he's been to the playoffs like ever since he's played real playoff minutes. I, I think that matters. I think that's all fair. I still think it's fair to criticize a starting point guard for going like he's not even going, I yeah. think, a point where it's even like, is he clutch or is he not? It's like, OK, can he get anything going? Yes, 100%. Yeah, I didn't mean that to come across like I was like trying to excuse it. Like he's been brutally bad. And I mean, and I think we're really seeing right now how tough, I think down the stretch, we saw how tough it is for Tatum when he's literally the only guy, you know, who, who's been putting the ball in the hoop on a consistent basis. I mean, Jalen hit his threes tonight, but like he, he was the only guy who, who was really scoring, was really creating his own shots. And when Kemba is doing, is giving you almost nothing, like they're able to key in on Tatum. They're able to just make his life harder too. Like it has a effects up and down the roster they just miss Gordon Hayward so bad 
think they just need that extra guy who can dribble, pass, and shoot. In the first half, in the second quarter, so before things even got, like, really bad, the Celtics were up 32-20, to 20, and on the court, they had Grant Williams, Brad Wanamaker, Shemi Ojale, Kemba, and Jason Tatum. And then over the course of two and a half minutes, the Heat got the score to 31 31- to 36 so they brought it from 12 to 5 the Celtics lead and not that the Heat even had their starters in the Heat had their bench players in like both Jimmy and Bam were on the bench at that point but I just think that shows again the Celtics bench has been sort of not a strength for sure though Brad Wanamaker did play very well tonight I just think they need that one other guy on the court and that would just alleviate a lot of their issues what's your prediction Brad has been so cagey and coy about his status what's your prediction on gordon hayward as always these are uneducated guesses right. with uh, with gordon because like nobody knows from reading the tea leaves i would say i would bet that we see him in game three or maybe game four because i know that the, the nba has been talking about you know having a big break between game three and game four i think the rumor is that that it might be a, like a three-day break um between games three and four if that comes out and obviously that should come out tonight now that that the clippers and uh nugget series is over if it turns out that it actually is going to be three days off I would be surprised if we saw him before that. Three days off, like you're almost like you're buying yourself like on like another half a week there of, of <laughs> rehab and workouts and everything. And I know Brad has uh has talked about how Gordon has looked really good in his in his hard workouts and everything, but like it's gonna take some adjustment to get him back into the lineup. So today marks the four week mark since the Celtics made their announcement that he would miss at least four weeks. And Brad Stevens has since said on the radio that he thought that four weeks might be aggressive. I mean, maybe that was also all sort of gamesmanship and stuff. So who, like you said, who really knows? But I wouldn't be surprised if it's like game five, just because it is the four week mark. I doubt he's going to be available for game two. Knowing me, yeah. Yeah. I'll say this now and he'll be available for game two. I, I just don't see it happening. And I think what's interesting too is, so Brad was asked on the radio, apparently. I didn't listen to this. I just saw it on Twitter. But apparently he was asked on the radio about whether he still plans to leave for the birth of his son. And Brad was like, yeah, I really don't know. Brad knows. There's no way Gordon's not telling him if he's leaving the bubble again. Like, Brad does this sometimes, too, where you'll, like, you'll you'll ask him a question about, you know, a player's, like, status. Like, oh, yeah, when is he going to be back? And Brad will be like, I, I honestly, I haven't even asked the medical staff. And I'm like, you haven't asked the medical staff when Gordon Hayward will be back. Okay, Brad, thank you. Like, just tell us you're not going to tell us, man. Like, we're not <laughs> we're not as dumb as you think we are, man. <laughs> I mean, who knows? I would be shocked if he stays because I know he did have that time home, but he chose to come back, I think, earlier than he needed to. Also, it's the birth of his first son. I mean, it's the birth of his child regardless, but it's the birth of his first son. He's adamantly said before the bubble that he would 1,000% go back. He's been at the birth of all three of his daughters. He said it was an easy decision again I'll probably say this and then maybe he stays in the bubble but like I just can't see him staying so I'm really curious to see how it ends up panning out with him because the wild thing is is like the time that he probably would be available is when he would maybe need to leave for the birth we'll see how it all works out yeah we're really getting down to it in that way (laughs) um like also he should go home I mean, if he decides to stay, I mean, that's his decision. I hope he does. I hope he makes the decision based on uh, what his, his family and, and he thinks that he should do rather than like about like trying to make sure that like the Celtics don't lose a pivotal game five or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, right. I hope that I hope that's not the reason he sticks around if he decides to stick around. I agree. 
So Grant Williams, one for two from three tonight, continues to just be an absolute sniper of a three-point shooter. I did think it was interesting. He and Rob basically like split 20 minutes of center time. I don't know. I don't know entirely know what Rob, like what is the right matchup for him at this point? Like, I, you know, I know we've all been talking about like, oh, it's all matchup based. It's all matchup based. And, and for Rob, it's like, I, again, I still think that he's got future starter potential and all that stuff. But like in the, in these playoffs, like if, if he's, if he's back to jumping at everything, if he's back to swiping at everything, um, if he's back to being out of position all the time on the defensive end, like, if, if that's going to be the case, I think it's too early for him at this point. So I, I definitely get putting Grant in there, even despite the size disadvantage, just because I, I think generally Grant knows where he's supposed to be, even if he doesn't quite get there in time yet. He knows like what he should be doing. There isn't a whole lot of confusion there. You mentioned that they both played like 10 or 11 minutes. Actually, Rob got more minutes, but Grant got the more important minutes. Not to pile on your favorite play-by-play guy, Mark Jones, but in the overtime, once Tice fouled out with like 3.30, I think, remaining in the in the overtime period, Mark Jones was like, oh, well, here comes Robert Williams, probably. You got to guess that like he's the guy that'll come in. It's like, nope, <laughs> that's not going to be the choice here. <laughs> Again, that's to no fault of Mark Jones. Conventional thought would definitely indicate that Rob would be the choice here. But I think you're exactly right in that, like, if the Heat are going to score against Grant Williams, it's probably because they just beat Grant Williams. Whereas if the Heat are going to score on Robert Williams, it's possible Rob was not even close to the shooter. You know what I mean? Like, it's possible, like, he was, it's also possible he will swap the shot. But I think just that uncertainty creates distrust for Brad to put him in in pivotal minutes. Rob had that one huge block tonight where he swatted Jay Crowder off the, or he swatted a layup off the backboard so hard that it like, it was basically a pass to a spotting up, uh, Jay Crowder. Even when he does something great, like swatting the shot and it stays in bounds and it, like the ball stays in play. It's just like scoots out to a wide open shooter. And I, I also thought it was funny that, uh, everybody lost their minds for a second because Brad put Wanamaker in when Tice initially fouled out and everybody on Twitter was just like, what is he doing? I don't like this. And it was then it was for one possession and then Grant came back in and I was like, all right, well, here we are. Did you see that Ennis Cantor logged, um, like one possession, I think? So I saw that in the box score and I did not remember it occurring. Actually, Quinn tweeted it out. So now I guess is a good time to plug our Twitter account at GenoTimePod. It's run by a listener, actually, Quinn Johnson. And he tweeted out the one play that Cantor was in and it wasn't good. So go check it out (laughs) on the GenoTimePod Twitter account. Shout out to the the new homie, Quinn Johnson. (laughs) One last thing, too. Do you think Tatum should have or would have gotten called for a travel on his sort of desperation, like when the Celtics had 2.5 seconds to get the ball? Like, he fell down, but he had possession when he fell down, and then he fully got back up. Like, I feel like that would have been a travel. I think it probably would have been a travel, yeah. The only reason why I brought that up was I feel like people were sort of talking about how, like, oh, my God, if that went in. Because he got a pretty He almost made it, yeah. Two and a half seconds to, like, fall down, fully get back up, and then get a shot off. Like, he almost made it, but my thinking was, like, that definitely would have been a travel because, like, he caught the ball, fell down, and then, like, stood up. Stood up, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with it. So, yeah. All right, guys. Well, we will leave it there. Like Nicole said, uh, make sure everybody who's listening go follow at GenotimePod on Twitter. Feel free to drop us a DM. Let us know what you think. Uh, we appreciate you all, and we will talk to you soon.
Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York.